going to talk this evening, and I'm uh, grateful again for what God is doing and what he did this afternoon, and God's connected us recently with a couple of backslider families, and just believing that God's going to work in those situations, um, in addition to all the stuff that he's already doing. Um, and I covet your prayers, my wife and I, and the, the group at OCC are such a wonderful group of people, and we're all one church, so we're all together. So thank you for praying for Ormukto. In Genesis chapter 33 this evening, if you read up until that point of the book of Genesis, you'll understand that it has been approximately 20 years since a family was fractured. Jacob had deceived his own father and with the aid of his mother received the blessing of Isaac that had been intended for his older brother Esau. So when we last see these brothers in the same place, when we last see them in the same house, Esau has vowed to kill his brother when their father passes away. He was violently angry because of the wrong that had been done to him by his brother. So perhaps out of guilt, but definitely out of concern, Rebecca, who was Isaac's wife and the mother in this whole wholesome family, that was a joke. Rebecca packs Jacob's things and sends him away until Esau calms down. But that little journey extended out into 20 years of service to Jacob's uncle, Laban. In an amusing display of competing con artists, Laban employs Jacob for the privilege of marrying his daughter, Rachel. However, after seven years, as agreed, Laban deceived Jacob into marrying his older daughter, Leah. Furious, Jacob demands marrying Rachel. Laban says, okay. Give me seven more years. So Jacob does this, and he finally marries the love of his life after 14 years of hard service to his uncle Laban. And then for six more years, Jacob remains with Laban. Laban constantly changes his wages. Laban constantly tries to manipulate Jacob in order to increase his own wealth. But the blessing of Abraham and the blessing of Isaac rested upon Jacob. So no matter how much Laban contrived to manipulate the situation to his economic advantage, Jacob always came out ahead. And finally, frustrated by the treatment of his father-in-law, Jacob takes his family and leaves. Doesn't tell Laban, just leaves. And you think, wow, he's, he's free of that con artist. Yeah, well, as he returns back to the place of his birth and his home of 20 years earlier, there is a looming shadow that has been in his mind since he left home 20 years earlier. That shadow looming that my brother my brother, he's angry with me, and he hates me, and he's going to kill me because of what I've done to him, because I have hurt him. Jacob knew that he had deceived his father into receiving 
that blessing. He knew that he had wronged his brother Esau for all of the flaws that Esau had, and he had quite a few of them. The Bible tells us, as we heard last week, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. We, we understand that Esau had a lot of flaws in his character, and, but Jacob had done him wrong. He had lied and deceived to get ahead in life. And so as Jacob's family nears the place where he had fled from 20 years ago, he brings with him wives and children and flocks and herds and all kinds of material goods. And, and then as he gets near, the news comes to Jacob that his brother is on his way. And there is in that instant an a immediate fear and guilt that grips the heart of Jacob. We read just a piece of this in Genesis chapter 33, verse number 1. Now Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. Uh-oh. Esau was coming, and it wasn't just Esau. Esau was an intimidating man. He was a large man of the field. But, but it wasn't just Esau that was coming. It was 400 men with him. And so Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he's preparing for the worst. This was the reaction, not of an innocent conscience, but of a guilty conscience. This was the reaction of a guilty man who knew that he was in the wrong. And it was the night before that Jacob had sent gifts ahead in hopes of easing his brother's anger and and he had divided his family as we read to to flee in different directions hoping that some would escape the wrath of his older brother and then he crossed the river Jabbok and he wrestled with an angel all night long refusing to let him go until he received a blessing from God and he emerged from that struggle physically marked with a limp and God had granted his request and named him Israel for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. However, that guilt, that looming shadow, 20 years old, still lingered in the heart of Jacob. It still clung to the heart of Jacob. That, that looming shadow that I've done something wrong to my brother. The next few verses of Genesis 33 record how Jacob did all of these things. And, and to Jacob's... Immense surprise. Esau runs at him, not with a weapon in hand, not with a scowl on his face, but Esau runs at Jacob with tears of joy streaming down his face. And he enwraps Jacob in a great red-haired bear hug. The elder brother asks, about the meaning of the gifts. What, what does all of this mean? Why did you send all of these things ahead of you? And that made it clear to Jacob that Esau was no longer enraged. He was no longer, he had, he had let that go ages ago, perhaps even 20 years ago. He had, he had moved forward and that he has enough for himself and he no longer holds that grudge that he had 20 years ago. And, and so Jacob introduces his family to Esau and all these kids and wives and servants and, and all of these folks. It's kind of like a family reunion. And at this point, Jacob says something that caught my attention as I read this story 
about a week ago. Genesis chapter 33, verse number 9, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God. I see your face, Esau, as though I had seen the face of God. Jacob, in this moment, identifies something that just stood out to me so, so clearly as I read this passage of scripture. Jacob was walking with a limp. He was different. He was a changed man. He'd just come out of a wrestling match with God. But can I submit to you this evening that his view of God, how he perceived God, was still distorted by the lens of 20 years of conflict with his brother Esau. For 20 years, Jacob carried the guilt for 20 years, the wrong he had done to Esau plagued his mind. And even while Esau had forgiven and moved on with his life, it was to the point where when Jacob saw Esau's face, he compared it to seeing the face of God. Because when you're in conflict with your brother, and it's unresolved, it's looming, it's not dealt with. When you're in conflict with your brother, you can't see God for who he is. You can wrestle with God. He can bless you. You can see his hand at work in your life, but you can't really see him clearly because your brother is in the way. Unresolved relationships, unresolved conflicts, Unresolved bitterness and unresolved anger and guilt and shame, all of these things will distort how we see God. We can experience salvation. We can have our name changed from sinner or deceiver into Israel, child of God. Yet still our perception of God will be distorted by what has not been resolved. We see this so often when we think about God as our heavenly Father. So many times it's so difficult for us to relate to that because of the shortcomings of our earthly Father. And so the unresolved relationships, the unresolved issues can have a significant impact on our relationship with God. Sin is washed away in the waters of repentance and baptism in Jesus' name. But the scripture records that there is more than just the necessity of repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. The, the Bible records that there, is, there are steps that we can take as we move forward in our lives that can bring us to a clearer vision of who God really is. Scripture records that it is necessary, absolutely, to make things right where possible and to the extent possible with those unresolved relationships. And until we do, we will not see God clearly. Our relationship with God is going to be hindered. It's going to be, it's going, there's going to be things that, that we struggle with and there's going to be feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation that hang over us. As an example, 
We turn to Luke chapter 19 and verse number 1. It says that Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd. We all know the story. If you went to Sunday school, there's a little song that goes with that. Anybody know that? Zacchaeus was a climbed up sycamore tree. What? All right, I'll stop. Then Jesus came to the place where he was, and he looked up at him, and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Awesome. That's exciting. Isn't it exciting when God wants to take residence in your house? When we, make it, when we say, God, I want you so much, I'm willing to go through every obstacle. I'm willing to do whatever you, with just I need to see you, Jesus. And Jesus looks up and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. That's so powerful. I'm so thankful that God has an impact in our day-to-day lives. He's not just some, some guy in the sky that doesn't intervene and on the ground. He comes down and, and sits with us. I'm thankful for that. And so we made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, everybody around complained, saying, He has gone to be the guest with a man who is a sinner. (gasps) My goodness. You see, tax collectors were notoriously dishonest and greedy. And admittedly, we'll see in a moment, Zacchaeus was one of them. These tax collectors were despised by their fellow Jews as traitors to their nation. But watch what Zacchaeus says next and how Jesus responds to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus said, look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. That's awesome. We need to uphold those among us that need help and and, and all of these things to give to the poor, to provide. The Bible talks about pure religion, undefiled is such that. Such as that. But then he says this. If I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Zacchaeus was declaring that I am going to restore what I have taken that was not mine from somebody else. I'm going to restore. It wasn't mine to take, and I took it. But I'm going to do everything in my power to reconcile with those people that I've hurt. I'm going to do everything in my power to restore the relationships. It wasn't just about money. The Bible says where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And that thing that he had done to people had impacted them not just in their wallet, but it had impacted their heart. And so he said, I'm going to restore and I'm going to go above and beyond to restore the relationships that I have impacted. I have to. He repented and he made a decision to restore those relationships and all the ill-gotten gain to those that he had hurt. And when he said that, look at Jesus' response. It's wonderful to have Jesus come to your house. But it's another thing to have salvation bestowed by Christ Jesus. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come 
to this house because he is a son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost and can I encourage somebody today these are difficult conversations to have these reconciling conversations these are challenging things to talk through in the midst of the world in which we live in the climate in which we live in this world everyone wants to yell at each other and nobody wants to talk to each other but can I encourage somebody today with this question what miracle waits on the other side of your restored relationship? What marriage can be brought together if both sides say, I'm going to focus on restoring this relationship? What, what relationship between father and mother and children can be restored if that becomes the priority? I'm going to restore this relationship. God's given us the ministry of reconciliation, not just between man and God, but between one Another. It's so important Jesus included it in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 23. And he said, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, everybody say first. I know we got all dressed up to come this evening. Thank you for coming. I'm so thankful for the presence of God that we felt and the worship that went up in this place this morning and this evening. But the first thing on God's priority list is not just that you come to this building, but if you remember that somebody has something against you, my responsibility, not their responsibility, my responsibility is to leave the presence of God, go and make things right as best as I can in that relationship and then come and offer my sacrifice of praise unto God again. It's on me. Everybody say, that's on me. That's on me. That's my job. That's my responsibility to be reconciled to those who have ought against me. Notice that Jesus gives no qualifiers to this verse. He doesn't say, if it was your fault, go and offer, go and talk to this. No, he just said, if you remember anybody has ought against you, no matter whose fault it is, go and restore that relationship in such a way as you can. And beyond things that we've done as Zacchaeus had done when we were lost in sin and as Jacob had done when he was a deceiver, let me take things a little bit closer to home this evening because family matters. Amen? You see, this affects more than just brothers and those we wronged while we were living in sin. But ongoing, unaddressed tension and conflict at home will distort your vision of God. And it will distort the vision of God for your children. I'll say that one more time. Ongoing, unaddressed tension and conflict at home will distort your vision of God and it will also distort the vision of God of your children. And we read things like this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 7. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Why is this important? What's the last part of that verse? That your prayers 
be not hindered. That means my vision of God is going to be completely skewed if things aren't right at home. That word hindered means frustrated. My prayers are going to be frustrated when things aren't right at home. It also means cut down. Why? Because my vision of God is skewed because things aren't right. I'm not pursuing restoration. It doesn't mean you're always feeling lovey-dovey at home, but it does mean that we're in this together and we're working towards reconciliation together. We're loving one another, not just in that heart of the rush beat, rush of the heartbeat emotion, but in the decision making and the lifestyle choices and the way that we're living our lives. My relationship with God will be frustrated and cut down when I, as a husband, do not value and honor my wife. That hits close to home. So how am I called to do that? Well, Paul gives us some explanation. Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 25, when he said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now that's a tall order, to love our wives as Christ also loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? How did he love the church? Well, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so as husbands, true men of God, we sacrifice everything that we have to demonstrate our love in the home. And so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And can I insert this? That in an atmosphere of unconditional sacrificial love, it's much more easy for a wife to submit to her husband. Can I, can I get an amen, ladies? Amen. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord, the church. And now that doesn't leave wives out of it. Colossians 3, verse number 18 tells us, Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. And so it's with wives and husbands, but also children. Any children in the house? Anybody under 18 in the house? Get ready. Buckle up. Children, I know you've heard this quoted from your mom and dad. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And so that means if I am under the covering of my parents, then I must remain submitted to my parents or my relationship with God is going to be distorted. I'm not going to be thinking straight. I'm not going to see God right if my relationship with my parents is distorted. And then fathers, any fathers in the house, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You see, there's this 
two-way street here, not to bring such weight of expectation upon our kids that they feel constricted and they can never live up to the standard that we've set. Because I don't want my children to be discouraged from living for God. Let's go to the workplace. Bond servants, obey in all things your bosses. I'm going to put this 21st century translation. Obey in all things your bosses according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, not just doing it when your boss is looking, but working diligently when they're not looking. In sincerity of heart, fearing God. You see how this concept of restoring relationships applies everywhere in our lives. If I'm not right with my boss, I must pursue restoration in that relationship. Or else my view of God is going to be distorted. Whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord and not to men. Why? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Family matters. Family matters. How we resolve conflict in the family matters. And the reality is, is that I can't be saved, ultimately, if I don't handle this well. Jacob was so weighed down by his family conflicts and unresolved relationships that it distorted his view of God. And it was only when that was dealt with that he went on in his life at the end of this chapter, Genesis 33, that he built an altar and called it El Elohi, Israel, the mighty God of Israel. That was when he could truly see God for who he was and he truly could, could worship God for who he was when his relationship challenges had been dealt with. And so the question this evening is this. Do you fight feelings of envy? Towards others, jealousy, covetousness, a sense of unfairness, guilt for outright wrongdoing that either you have done, that you've repented of, and you still feel guilty about it, or maybe something that someone did to you. Do you struggle regularly with a bad attitude? Well, there might be something that God wants you to do. If there's any relational unresolved conflicts. God wants us to make things right. To make things right. It's a prerequisite to be saved. Psalm, Psalm chapter 15, verse number 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? I want to dwell in thy holy hill. I, we talked about heaven. I, I want to I dwell in heaven with God. I want to dwell on earth walking with God. And how do I do that? See, that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. And he doesn't backbite with his tongue. He doesn't cut people down with their tongue. They don't do evil to their neighbor. Nor do they take up a reproach and offense against his neighbor. I will not abide in the tabernacle until I deal with unresolved relationships in my life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 14, the writer said it this way, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. We love holiness. We're a holiness-believing, holiness-living church. Amen? 
I believe God's called us to, to live and model and to represent God in our conversations, in our lifestyle, in our dress, in our attitudes, in our language. Anybody believe that? I believe that with all of my heart, but I also believe the first half of that verse that I must pursue. That word means follow after, to press towards. I must press towards peace with all people without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest any fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. This is so, so important. We can't gloss over this and just, and just sing our songs and, and have those moments in the presence of God. Sometimes God's calling us to leave this place and restore relationships in our lives. I think about it this way. How many marriages could have been saved if we pursued peace with all people? How many children could have been saved if we pursued peace with all people? How many backsliders can be recovered if we pursue peace with all people? How many souls could be brought into the kingdom of God? I rejoice in the power of holiness. I rejoice in the power of the Holy Ghost sweeping across these altars. But what about pursuing peace? on Monday when the boss just, just launches into me and I don't know how to respond. How about pursuing peace when somebody tries to stab me in the back and I forgive them and I try and restore that relationship? How about pursuing peace? Pursuing peace intentionally. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to do what we can to pursue peace so that no bitterness gets in our heart. If you're constantly pursuing peace, you can't get bitter at people because you're uprooting that root of bitterness every time. It comes in your life, okay, I got, I'm going to make that. It's not on me. I didn't, I didn't do the thing that made me feel uncomfortable, but I'm going to do my part, and I'm going to try and make things right in this relationship. That root of bitterness gets uprooted very quickly. And the longer a root of bitterness stays rooted in our spirit, the more it gets part of the tentacles get out into our family and into our colleagues and friendships. And we get bitter. And that pollutes those around us. Restoring relationships. As we come to the end of this message this evening, I wonder if you could just bow your head and talk to God for a minute and just open up your heart to Jesus in this last few moments of this service. God, your word is quick and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces us to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, God. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. God, I pray let your word go deep within us tonight. That change would result. That there would be decisions made in the next few moments for reconciliation. That would be decisions made to pursue peace. That there would be decisions made even in circumstances that are completely unfair, even in circumstances that are completely 
wrong. That as a body of believers, we would resolve to pursue peace. In Jesus' name. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul wrote, verse number 17, This I say therefore, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of your mind. See, we can justify ourselves in our mind very easily in these relational things, can't we? Well, it's their fault. They did that. That was years ago. They probably don't even remember it. That ye henceforth walk not as Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. And that you put off concerning the former conversation, skipping to verse 22, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So this is part of our new life in Christ. So let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, of building up, of encouraging, of reconciling, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And that corrupt communication not proceeding out of our mouth is related to this verse. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. How we communicate in our relationships has the potential to either Grieve the Spirit of God or create opportunity for the Spirit of God to flow. How we communicate, how we talk to one another, we can grieve the Spirit of God with our communication. So let all bitterness, there's that word, and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And here is the antidote. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. See, bitterness and unresolved relationships can cause a rot to come into a family. It can cause rot to come into our own personal relationships with God and the outside can still look okay, but that rot is there and it grows. It doesn't stop. It progresses. And so I wonder if you would join me this evening and make a decision that I will begin to address this rot tonight. I will begin to address this rot in my life tonight. Because loving one another, being kind to one another, serving one another, Pursuing peace with one another. It is the antidote to the poison of unresolved relationships. Final couple of verses this evening as we stand. I beseech you therefore, brethren, Romans 12, 
by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That Those are powerful verses, but Romans chapter 12 continues beyond those verses. Verse number three, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dwelt to, dealt to every man a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, where there are all members, but we're all part of one body in Christ. We are members one of another. And so in the context of the body of Christ, just talking about the church now, if I have aught against my brother, if I have aught against my sister, if there's tension within my home that's not addressed and not being working towards resolution, then there, is a, there has been some sort of a division in the body. And so let our love be without dissimulation. Romans chapter 12, verse number 9. That's an old word. That simply means let your love be sincere. Because I know we can come to church and we can put on... How are you doing? Good. Wonderful. Couldn't be better. We can smile and talk to one another and, and everybody, we, we do it every week. It's a beautiful thing, the family of God. I'm so thankful for it. But there are some times in our lives when somebody in this body hurts somebody else that we can harbor that in our spirit and still every time we think of them, oh, I can't believe they did that. What They said that. I'm so, you see them on Sunday? Praise the Lord. How are you? Good to see you. You liar. Haven't we been there? I'll put my hand up first. I've been there. That word and the New King James dissimulation is translated as, let your love be without hypocrisy. And that word hip hypocrisy, hypocrite, comes from the Greek word for an actor on a stage wearing a mask. And so if there's anybody in your life that when you think of them, something just irks you. Your stomach goes into a knot. You think about something they said maybe 20 years ago. God's calling you to make that right. Because our love cannot be hypocritical, but sincere. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another.
I wish to God that there would be such a spirit of humility and sincerity that would descend upon our lives and that nobody's here to look for claim. Nobody's here to get ahead. When we hurt, one hurts, we all hurt. When one suffers, we all suffer. We're just all here to serve one another, to love one another, to build one another up, to speak life over one another, to pray when somebody's hurting, to provide when somebody's in need. Because God has called us to restore relationships. It is so important. It's the key to end time harvest. Because Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. That means I would go to the cross for you. That's what that means. That's agape love. That's unconditional love to have one to another. And I can only have that with the help of the Holy Ghost inside of me. And it's by this love that all men shall know that you are my disciples. If you have love one to another. In our culture, we've cheapened the word love. We say we love everything. I love the maple leaves. God help me. But the love that God's called us to is so deep, so deep compared to what our culture defines as love. Our culture defines love as just some sort of a sensual desire. That's, that's all that our culture defines love as. But God's love is so deep. It's unconditional. And God wants to release his love amongst his people to a place that, that the world looks at us and says, oh my goodness, I can't find that love anywhere else. I want to be in that family. I want to be in that body. And I know that's what you want to. And so I wonder if in the last few moments of this service, it's going to be a different end this evening. The altar call, if you will, is going to be beyond those doors. But at the end of this service, I wonder if we could just lift our hands and if there's anything in this message that just kind of pricked your heart, if you would just lift up your hands and say, Jesus, Jesus, I know they have ought against me. I know that that relationship is where it should be. I know, I know my marriage is in trouble right now. I know that my relationship with my children is on the rocks right now. I know, I know, I know. God, help me to pursue peace. Help me to pursue peace. I wonder if you would lift up your voice unto God this evening and just begin to talk to him as the music comes. Lord God, I pray in this room that there would be such a spirit of love and humility and service that enters into us. God, that we would not hold anything against anybody. Lord Jesus, that we would pursue peace, that we would follow after peace with everybody in our circle of influence, God, that we 
would pursue peace in our homes. God, that we would pursue peace on the job. That we would pursue peace in the marketplace. That we would pursue peace everywhere that we go. Everything that we do. Lord Jesus, Lord, that you would convict us tonight of any relationship that we have not dealt with. That you would bring it to our mind this evening. Any unrestored, unresolved relationship. Because God, I need to see you for who you are. And the world needs to see you for who you are. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Lord, prick my heart this evening. Anything that I need to do. Anything that I need to do, God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're going to sing a song for a couple of minutes. And I wonder, under that, that, that worship, that wave of worship, if you would just talk to God for a couple of minutes this evening and just let him speak into your heart in that still small voice and just let him work in your life and work in your family and work in your community this evening. Hallelujah, hallelujah. desire is God. I'm going to pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man